Well, hello again, everyone. My name is Dave Latham. I'm the RUF campus minister at CNU, and it's good to be back here with you as we continue our look at the kingship of Jesus. Um, and a quick word, if anybody is, is looking at CNU as a future school or would like to come down and hang out at CNU, I would love to meet you. If you want to just come and take a look and see what God's doing at CNU, it's really encouraging and I uh, would love to give you my number or my email, and y'all come down and take the quick little trip, and I'll even buy you a cup of coffee. So that's my promise to you. Um, but I, I'm glad to be here with you. And we're going to be looking at uh, the returning king. And there's going to be a few little bonuses that I threw in uh, for the sermon. One of those is going to be we're going to look at Psalm 2 as well. So if you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Revelation 21 and flip back to Psalm 2. We're going to look at Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, and that's where we'll, uh, we'll start this morning. Everybody good to go? Psalm 2? Got, the fi- got a finger back here in the back and looking at Psalm 2? Let me remind you again as we, as we look to God's Word this morning that these aren't just some good moral, nice teachings that we can you know, crochet on a pillow. This is the very Word of the Lord, and we'd be very wise if we listened to it. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word from Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll go to Revelation 21. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Let's flip over to Revelation 21. And we'll be reading the first five verses. Contrary to what your bulletin says, which is the first four, I threw in a little freebie for you. Verse five is on the house, okay? Revelation 21, the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. Our Lord and our King, we look to you and we look to you alone for all hope. We're thankful that you're sovereign and that you love us. Thankful that you've given us this day to gather together as a family and look to you. Father, we pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to cast off the cares of day-to-day struggle. Lord, even just for this brief time that we come together to look to your word. And we pray that you would meet us here. 
pray that we would learn more about you and more of ourselves, that we might glorify you and be even more astounded by the grace and mercy that you show us through Jesus. Meet us here, we do pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a book over the summer called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. If you have not read it, I would highly recommend it to you. I bought it, and uh, if you bought it on, if you actually, I have it on Kindle, but if you bought the paper version, it's a big, thick book. I bet it took me two days to read it. I mean, I just absolutely nailed that thing. It's a great book. I usually read really slowly. I devoured this book. And what it is, the amazing thing about it is, like, I love documentary movies, and the reason that I do is because sometimes real life, what happens in real life, is so much more amazing than anything Hollywood could ever come up with. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding when you start hearing the pictures of what has happened in other people's lives, and you just, you just kind of are taken, but you're like, there's no way somebody could make that up. There's, and this book is an absolute picture of this. You're like, there is no way somebody could make up this guy's life. It's incredible, and it's true. That's the amazing thing about the book. All the, I'm not going to spoil it. The amazing thing about the book is you read it, and you're like, there's no way that really happened in real life, and it did. It's crazy. It's the story is about a guy named Louis Zamperini, who was a, kind of an all-American track star. Like He was on, on uh, everybody when he, early on in his running days. He's going to break the four-minute mile. The guy was unbelievable. He was an, Olymp, an Olympic medal winner. I think he won a gold medal. Just an absolutely fast, amazing athlete. And what happened is he is captured in World War II. He's a POW in Japan. And he gets, he gets captured. He actually floats on a raft for 27 days with sharks around him. And then a Japanese bomber or Japanese fighter pilot comes in and tries to shoot him and the guys that he's in the raft with out of the water. And then throughout that, he still survives and... That's the rest of the book. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it. But I am probably. Um, he, and other, <laughs> he and these other POWs had been in prison under harsh conditions for months. I mean, they get captured. They, there's, this, the, there's a guy named the Bird who they nicknamed this Japanese officer, the Bird. And he's just this mean tyrant. I mean, just beating people unmercilessly. I mean, just an absolute... I mean, he's, he's mean to the POWs, much less his own guards. I mean, just a brutal brutal, brutal man. I mean, you want to tear the book in half. You're reading it. And one morning in 1944, B-29 bombers started appearing in the sky over the remote camp where they were. In the first service, I said B-52s. I misspoke. It's a B-29, so sorry. Any of you, I apologize. No, I yield the floor for my aerial history to you. It was, in fact, a B-29, Okay. So a B-29 plane, they started seeing these B-29s buzz over the top of the camp. And the amazing thing about this is these guys, remember, these guys had been beaten, they had been starved, they were, they were sick, they had dysentery, they, I mean, this was bad, this was bad news. And they were deep in the middle of Japanese-controlled territory, they did not think that hope was ever going to come. And then all of a sudden, the American planes start flying over. B-29s, of course. And what they said was something, something was immediately different. Something had changed. Everyone stood in awe when these planes started flying over, including the Japanese guards. It's like the whole camp just shut down and froze, and everybody is looking at the sky because something had changed, and it gave these beaten, half-dead prisoners hope to hang on. The tide's changing. 
Our boys are coming for us. Let's hang on. Last week, we looked at the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 17, which was the promise of an eternal throne, where David wanted to build a house for God, and God comes on and says, something bigger and something better is already planned. And God's message to David was, it's not about you. It's not about you at all. And we saw that biblical covenants are never about the men they're named after. They're always about the covenant God who always keeps his promises. It's not about David. It's called the Davidic covenant. But, there, but David didn't keep it. God did. God made the covenant and God kept the covenant. And last week we looked at the promise of the king. Here this, this king is going to come. He's going to come and I will establish his kingdom forever. And this week we're going to look at the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. The hope of the returning king. I think when we examine our own lives and we kind of look at our day-to-day struggles, it's, and even when we look at the world around us, I think we all struggle to find hope in a broken world. Like true hope, good latch yourself to it hope. And we look around and we see marriages failing, we see relationships crumble, we see wars, we see, I mean just brokenness, just absolute brokenness all over the place. And we're like, ugh, where are we going to find hope in the midst of this? It's hard. And I want us to think about one big question as we kind of unpack this text and think about this this morning is, how does the picture of Jesus being the great returning king give us hope? Why should we care and why should this give us hope? We're going to look at three main points this morning if you're you're taking notes. So we're going to find hope in Jesus the ruler, Jesus the rescuer, and Jesus the redeemer. So ruler, rescuer, and redeemer. Those will be our three points that we look at this morning as we go through. Well, let's look at this first point, finding hope in Jesus the ruler. There's something we all need to come to grips with, and let's face it. Virginia has not historically been a great fan of kings. I mean, think about the state flag. It's right over here if I was to go and unfurl it. I'm from South Carolina. We love our state flags. I mean, if you didn't know I was from South Carolina, maybe you picked it up from my accent um, or my bow tie. But... The thing that amazed me is like we love, South Carolinians love our state flag. I mean, it's got the palmetto tree on it and the crescent moon. I mean, we put it over everything. We love it. And Virginians, y'all love your state flag too, and you should because it's great. And you look, if I was to go and pull that flag out of the way, what you would see is six Semper Tyrannus. And what you see is a dead king on the ground with a foot on his chest. I mean... Virginia's not a big fan of kings. I mean, we don't even like folks calling us a state, do we? We're a commonwealth, thank you very much. We're not a state, we're a commonwealth. Slight nuance, but thank you for that. I mean, just by being an American, it's almost like you have this natural, born-in-you aversion to a king. Like, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. Not the local zoning board, not our neighbor next door, not our parents, much less the federal government. Like, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. I mean, if you want a litmus test for your own life, think about what would happen the next time somebody says, you can't do that. You know what in, the, in your mind you're doing? Yes, I can. <laughs> Oh yeah, I can. Watch me. When I was a little when I was a little squirt growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, my grandmama had this garage that you you'd had the garage and you had a few steps that went up kind of through the kitchen into the living room. So you could stand in the garage and you could kind of look kind of like I'm looking now 
at the other side of the building. And on the other side of that was this huge television set. You know the one that was like, it was so big, they actually built an armoire around it? You know, this, with all the knobs and stuff like that? Well, she had one of those guys. And my dad tells the story that when I was probably three or so, we were visiting grandma and we were helping bring some groceries into the house and dad looked up the steps and saw me over there standing next to the television with that little sparkle. I have a three-year-old, that little sparkle in your eye where you know like you're about to do something you're not supposed to do. And dad, dad from the garage said, David, if you mess with the knobs on that TV, you are going to be in trouble. I'm going to come get you. You know what I did? Not politely said, yes, sir. I touched as many knobs as I could between the time that my dad could get in through the kitchen to me. I mean, I was just like this the whole, the whole time. I mean, I was just touching them. And you know what? You have had moments like that. That is your heart. That is your life. You are a rebellious rule breaker. Come to grips with it. Yes, you are. If you're not, I would love to read your book. We're all rebellious, rule-breaking people. And one of the most offensive things about the gospel is that Christ calls us to submit to his rule. Well, we think, how did Jesus become king? And what gives him the right to make such a drastic claim on our lives? And we see in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, God comes on the scene and says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I mean, people have been claiming divine right for as long as there have been human kings. I mean, there have been wars fought between people saying, I have a divine right to rule and do this, and this other group going, no, you don't. I mean, there has been this struggle. And what we see in this passage in Psalm 2 is that God reminds us that He alone is the source of all divine right, and the throne has been Jesus's from all eternity. So any claim that any man has had to have the divine right for the throne, he says, no, 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 no. It's my son's and has been from all eternity. It's his throne. I mean, the theme that we see here in Revelation is Jesus as a strong, conquering king, a returning king with a sword in his hand. Jared Wilson wrote this book called Your Jesus is Too Safe, and he said, the great irony is that despite being the most discussed and confessed figure in all of history, no historical figure has been more marginalized and commoditized than Jesus. For many today, he is a generic brand, a logo, a catchphrase, a pick-me-up. I mean, what we see here in verse 3, let's read this again. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, as we look at this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the amazing thing about this is we do not find a coffee bistro table at the center of, of the New Jerusalem, do we? There's a throne there. And Jesus is speaking authoritatively from it. I mean, put yourself in John's shoes. The guy who wrote this book, who received the revelation, he goes from the beloved disciple leaning on Jesus' chest to now coming face to face with the king while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. This has to be just blowing his mind. Now, why should this picture of Jesus as a mighty king give us hope today? Well, I think because in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of doubt, depression, loneliness, anxiety, King Jesus is on the throne. 
in the midst of final exam week, talking to y'all, Jesus is on the throne. He really, really is. In Matthew 28, we get the, the Great Commission where Jesus comes on the scene and he's, and he's about to leave and he's commissioning the disciples. And we see this great proclamation where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. And there's not a little bit over here that I'm not in control of. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the proclamation. But yet we see in, this, in that great commission also an unbelievable promise. Because he says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. All authority has been given to me, and I'm never leaving you ever. Ever. I'm with you to the close of the age. This gave strength and hope to the disciples, and it gives hope and strength to us as well as we press on. I mean, this is more than just a catchphrase Jesus. This is more than like chicken soup for the soul Jesus. This is the king who brings order out of chaos and fights for his people to the very end. And he says, I'm with you. I'm the king, and I'm never leaving. I mean, in my own life, as I, I mean, I'm 31. I hadn't lived that very long, okay? But in my short life, when I look back, there have been days that I could not have gotten out of bed if I didn't believe that Jesus was sitting on the throne. I mean, I had a friend this past week call me who's one of my best friends from college and told me he's a doctor. He's always been the strong, like, Christian one when we were in college. He was like the roommate that had all the answers. You know, the rest of us were fumbling around. He's the one we went to, and he called me and says, I've got cancer. What do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with that? It is hard to get out of bed some mornings if I didn't believe that Jesus was sitting on the throne. John Calvin wrote, I'm glad Christ reigns, else I should have despaired. And Thomas Watson writes there, or wrote, There's nothing lost by serving this king, and I think he's absolutely right. There's a great image in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis where the children kind of start hearing about Aslan. You know, they're new into the land of Narnia and they, what this Aslan, what's going on with him? And they meet up with the beaver family and they say, you know, hey, tell me about Aslan. Is he safe? And they say, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe at all, but he's good. I mean, what we see is Jesus ruling with all authority, but with grace and compassion. But we also find hope in the purpose of his reign. We find hope in Jesus the rescuer. It's not that his rule in and of itself gives us hope. It should, and it does. But it's not that he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, but I have it for a reason. The purpose of my reign is rescue and redemption. Point two, Jesus the rescuer. I mean, how good are you accepting help from others? Do you usually welcome it with open arms or do you fight it to the bitter end when there's no other option but for you to finally relent and finally let somebody else love you? We all bristle at the thought of needing help. We'd rather just work harder and take care of ourselves. I mean, literally and practically, we want to be the king. We don't want to be the victim. We want to be the hero. We don't want to think of ourselves as the one tied and bound to the railroad ties while the, tr the steam engine is chasing down. We want to be Superman who comes in and scoops up and saves the day, don't we? Nobody wants to be the victim. We all want to be the hero. We don't want to admit to anyone that we're helpless. 
But in this passage, we get a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And what this shows us is that there's something desperately wrong with the old one. It needs to be replaced. I mean, it doesn't take long for us to realize this. I mean, a quick flip through the channels, or maybe you got the Sunday morning paper this morning. I mean, you don't have to get too far into section A to really realize that something's not right here. There is something desperately wrong It does not take long to do that. We look around and say things are not the way they should be. This is just not right. Look at verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What we get here is a list of things that will be taken care of, which implies that right now where we live, they're a big problem. Tears, death, Mourning, crying, pain, suffering, disease, brokenness, anxiety. We get a picture of absolute corruption and pain. Sin has its foot on the neck of creation and is crushing it. It's a desperate picture. It's a bleak picture. But just as many would like to sanitize Jesus' rule as a king and say, well, he's not really saying that. Others want to sanitize the effects of sin on this world. Say it's not really that big of a deal. But the Bible paints a grim picture of humanity and it calls us to come to grips with who we really are in sin. That we're not the hero. We're the villain. I mean, look at Paul in in Romans 7. Kind of a classic passage where he's kind of wrestling with sin in his own life. He even looks... I mean, this is the Apostle Paul who was called... The Apostle Paul, he's sitting here looking at his life going, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. This is a terrible picture. Who can deliver me from this? I mean, how often have you felt like Paul in your own fight with sin? You have this sin that has you by the throat and it will not let up. And you are just sitting here going, who will, wretched man that I am, Why do I keep going back to it? Who will deliver me from this? I can't fight this on my own. I mean, it's hard to feel hopeful when sin has you by the neck. You feel like a tiny boat in a huge ocean, like Louis Zamperini in shark-infested waters. The raft is going flat. You are in the middle of the ocean, and people are shooting at you. Look at verse 2. And I saw, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice which direction the new creation is coming. It's coming down. And look who's sending it. God himself. It's not as if the people down there are like, oh, please, please give us redemption. Oh, please do this. I mean, God is stepping onto the scene and it's coming down out of heaven from him by his grace. And look in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Notice the sea is being removed there. It's a symbol of rebellion and chaos. In Daniel 7, there's four beasts that rise, and they all come from the sea to wage war with the Lamb. And in Revelation 13, verse 1, we see that the first beast rises from the sea. Kind of this picture of the unknown and rebellion and chaos. 
But what we see is God's rescue plan for humanity beginning to close in this passage. Just as the new heavens come down to replace the old, so too in our own lives Jesus came down from heaven to replace our broken, messed up hearts with new ones. The plan of redemption in action, grace moving with feet on it. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, there's this, uh, it's, a, it's a book about this man who takes a dreamlike trip to hell. And one of the passages in there, he meets a shadowy figure with this red lizard on his shoulder. And this holy figure, kind of angelic kind of guy, approaches and asks if the man would like to be rid of the lizard. And the lizard starts whispering frantically in the man's ear that if he is removed, then both of them are going to die. You know, if you get rid of me, you're going down too. Well, after kind of some back and forth, finally the shadowy man relents and the holy figure cups his hands around the lizard. And what we see is the man screams in absolute agony as the lizard is removed and its neck is broken. They both fall down, but something amazing happens in the book. The shadowy man that was once just bound to this lizard and tormented by this lizard, takes on this new form, and the red lizard turns into a white horse. Suddenly, this newly restored, newly redeemed man jumps up on that strong white horse, and he rides away. Picture of redemption and reclamation and restoration. We see that Jesus came to rescue us from the crushing weight of sin's boot on our necks. Jesus came into the scene, he grabbed the lizard, and he broke its neck so that we could get up and ride off. What a gospel. King Jesus fights for broken, rebellious people who can't fight for themselves. You are not strong enough to take Satan on by yourself. You can't do it. Jesus stepped into our world and rescued us when no one else could. And the picture we see in verse 2 is that now in victory, he stands ready to receive the bride he has fought and died to save. King Jesus has rescued us from death and hell, and now he stands over Satan with his boot on his neck. This is not safe Jesus. This is not chicken soup for the soul Jesus. This is King Jesus who fights for his people. And that gives us hope. How could you not find hope to hang on in your fight with sin and brokenness when you get the picture of King Jesus with the foot with his foot on the neck of Satan? What an amazing passage. What an amazing hope. I mean, yes, it's a fight, but God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us keep punching until Satan's neck is finally broken. He gives you everything you need to keep swinging. The amazing thing about this picture is that Christ doesn't just win the battle and then leave his army beaten and bleeding on the field. It's not as if he leads the victorious army, he secures victory, and then he says, let me know how that works out. I'm sorry you've got some bullet wounds. I'm going to be over here in the nice tent. Y'all fend for yourselves. He doesn't do that at all. And that's where we get our third point. Jesus the Redeemer. We find hope in Jesus the Redeemer. Let's read verse 5 again. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus speaks from the throne and he proclaims the fulfillment of redemption. Behold, I am making all things new. What a hopeful verse. I hope it's underlined in your Bible. 
Behold, behold, I am making all things new. This is the major thrust of this whole passage that we're looking at. And I would argue that this is the major thrust of the entire Bible. Behold, I am making all things new. I mean, think about the Bible that you hold in your hand right now. If you were to flip past the title page and the table of contents and all the author's stuff and you know all the weights and measures and all that kind of stuff, and you actually flip past all the stuff that only pastors and seminarians read, and you actually arrive to the first page, Genesis 1, you will see that where is Genesis 3 in your Bible? A page and a half in. Two pages if you're large print at most. That's being gracious. Humanity makes it a page and a half in the Bible. Before we blow it. What if you became a new Christian? They said, hey, welcome to the family. Here's your Bible. It's a page and a half long. What a terrible gift. You can't, that's not even worth wrapping it in leather. You know, like, where are you going to put this thing? <laughs> I mean, we have to realize that humanity does not, get a good, does not get a good rap in the Bible. We make it a page and a half before we blow it. But yet, the amazing thing about the Bible that you hold is once you get past the page and a half, the whole rest of it is God redeeming and rescuing broken people who blew it in Genesis 3. That's the whole message of the rest of the Bible. You can't save yourself. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to win. Amazing. We see the church rescued from the trampling foot of those who want to kill her in verse 2, and now she is adorned as a beautiful bride, a broken, ugly bride, now redeemed and restored and reclaimed and washed and made ready. The amazing thing about verse 3 here, let's read that verse again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you remember how we made it a page and a half in the Bible and we blew it in Genesis 3? This verse is showing that curse being reversed. God and humanity are in communion again. God is dwelling. He is literally tabernacling with His people. We basically go from fig leaves to fellowship. From brokenness to redemption. From estrangement to fellowship and being invited back in again. This is amazing. The curse being reversed. I mean, one day we'll be able to live forever in the tabernacle of God because through Christ He first tabernacled with us. Amazing. Christ is gathering His church and He will not stop until His bride is redeemed and restored and you should take great hope in that. The King is on the move and, and the kingdom is being built. King Jesus fights for His church because He has honeymoon affections for her. I love you. I've given myself for you. I love you and I'm not going anywhere. I love the church. You're my bride. Hang in there. What we see is this steadfast Hesed covenant love. We talked about this last week. It's this never stopping, never ending, always and forever love. Hesed covenant faithfulness, my steadfast love. It's never going anywhere. And what we see is that grace, healing, and redemption is actually there for broken sinners. Not because you're lovely, not because you have it all together, not because you're the smartest, and not because you're the coolest, but simply because God loves you. And is giving you covenant, steadfast, faithful love that will never, ever, ever go away.
That's hope. Let's reread verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We see complete redemption and renewal through Jesus the Redeemer. No more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more friends calling you they have cancer, no more this marriage is over, none of that stuff. Every sad thing will become untrue through Jesus. There's hope beyond the grave. There's hope in the midst of trials and suffering. There's hope in the midst of final exam week. There's hope beyond ourselves. There's real, true hope here. This passage is incredible. We see in verse 5 that redemption is accomplished and Christ is sitting on the throne of heaven. And it looks at us and says, He is in control and we are not. You're not that big of a deal. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He says, look at me, I'm on the throne and I love you and I'm fighting for you. It's not about you at all. I mean, I'm glad for this promise because I would make a terrible king. I would be the worst king you've ever seen. You would prob- I would probably end up as the poster boy for the state flag. <laughs> I mean, I would make a terrible king and so would you because we're all selfish. And Jesus is the only king who's come on the scene and given completely of himself to bring and redeem other people in. And the people that he's bringing into the kingdom are not the people that you would pick. It's people that hate him. And he died for them. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. That's why it's good news for us. Because rebellious rule breakers get in for free through Jesus. Let's read verse 6. This is a freebie for this message, okay? I'm going to throw this one in. This one's on the house. Said, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's done. It's finished. We find hope because we get a peek at the end of the story. We get to flip to the end and see that the returning king, Jesus, wins. Yes, he does. That's the picture. That's what gives us hope as we press on. I mean, we might be racked with anxiety. We might, we might be anxious about a lot of things in our lives. But for all the things for you to be anxious about, this is not one of them. You do not need to be anxious about the fact that Jesus sits on the throne and he's the king. It's done. You don't need to worry about that. It's taken care of. Well, as we conclude, I think we all struggle to find hope in our day-to-day lives. And we all feel overwhelmed. And a lot of times we feel like we're alone. The amazing thing about sin is that even as we struggle and we wrestle, it makes us retreat further into the cave. We think no one really understands us. No one really sees where I'm coming from. So we withdraw, don't we? We feel overwhelmed and we feel alone. I mean, think about that many are so afraid of the current economic situation that they're taking their entire worth and turning it into gold. Converting it into gold that you can then take and put in the bank. That you can touch it, you can feel it, you can tangibly hold it, you can put it in the safe deposit box. I mean, when when strife hits, when struggle hits, we all want something we can bank on when we lose hope and direction. We're all looking for, I need something that I can bank my life on, something that I know will never change, something we can touch, something we can anchor ourselves to. 
And the amazing thing about this passage is that our great returning king gave John and gives us this morning a message that we can take straight to the bank. Look at verse 5 again. He says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He's saying you can take this to the bank. But what is he saying that you need to take to the bank? That's the beginning of verse 5. Behold, behold, take it to the bank. I am making all things new. Redemption, restoration, rescue, the plan of God working and moving, the kingdom of God being built, Jesus sitting on the throne, us rushing to him in the midst of trials, he says, take that to the bank. I'm on the throne and I am making all things new. What a gospel promise we have in Jesus alone. What hope we have in the returning king. And I hope it stirs our hearts to press on and keep punching against sin that has us at the throat. Because we know that the good king is on his way to come and redeem and restore. Amen? Let's pray together.